You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 204. This week I would like to thank Caleb for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where Caleb now gets access to special members-only episodes as well as ad-free versions of all of these normal episodes. I would also like to thank the person who donated through a monthly PayPal donation. I can't actually find your name in any of the information I received about it, but know that I am thankful. Last episode, we discussed a little about the Whites and the Allied intervention in the Russian Civil War. Today, we are going to talk about one of the White leaders which those Allied interventions would attempt to assist. That leader would be named Kolchak, Admiral Kolchak, Supreme Ruler Kolchak, and he would rise to power in Siberia in the middle of 1918. Over the course of late 1918 and early 1919, he would build up his forces and then on March 1919, he would launch his attack. This attack would see his forces of the Siberian army advance hundreds of kilometers, an advance that came to an end near the Volga River. This would be the short-lived high watermark for Kolchak's army, and within months his army would disintegrate and he would find himself on the run. The second half of this episode will involve us discussing the most famous or perhaps infamous event in the entire Russian Civil War, the Terrors. As the war raged back and forth across Russia, both sides, red and white, would commit some truly monstrous atrocities. Across the country, thousands of people would be killed, innocent and guilty alike, due to their political or religious beliefs, their ethnicities, or even just because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. An unexpected but critical group in the Civil War was a group of Czech, Slovak, and other Eastern European soldiers who became part of a unit known as the Czech Legion. The roots of the Czech Legion were during the First World War, when the Russians allowed groups of Czech soldiers to form their own units within the Russian army. This unit would then later incorporate Czech prisoners of war with the goal of helping the Allies win the war. They fought for the Russians against their Austro-Hungarian homeland in the hopes that after the war, this would help them get their own country. 
This possibility rallied a good number of Czechs to the cause, but then the revolutions happened. After the February Revolution, the Czechs were still on reasonably good terms with the provisional government. They continued to fight as part of the Russian army just like before, but then the Bolsheviks took over. With the Bolsheviks intending to remove Russia from the war by whatever means necessary, the members of the Czech Legion were suddenly in a very delicate position. The former Czech prisoners of war did not want to go back home. They would have been severely punished, maybe killed, for joining the Russian army. With a simple return home not an option, they wanted to keep fighting for Czech independence, and so they negotiated with Lenin and the Bolsheviks, with the help of the Czech statement's Thomas Mazrayek, and the deal that they reached that would allow the Czechs to leave Russia. But since Russia was at peace with Germany and Austria-Hungary, the Czechs couldn't go through their countries, and so the Czechs would have to go east. This meant traversing all of Russia, through Siberia, and all the way to Vladivostok, where the Allies promised that they would have shipping available to transport the Czechs to Western Europe, where they could keep fighting. There was hope that if this happened fast enough, the Czechs could even be available for fighting on the Western Front before the end of 1918. But then a funny thing happened in Eastern Russia. The Czechs kind of ended up starting the civil war in Siberia. As the Czechs moved east, they faced growing resistance from the Bolshevik forces along the way, mostly due to the commanders not letting the Czechs pass without extracting a price, mostly in supplies and guns, which the Czechs did not want to give up. Eventually, after some ill-advised choices by some red commanders at a few railway depots and some overreactions by the Czech soldiers, things got very violent. Suddenly, the Czechs were fighting their way through Russia, and in doing so, they were removing many red garrisons along the way, red garrisons that represented the only Bolshevik forces in many parts of Siberia. Bolshevik support had never been strong in Siberia. During the November 1917 elections, they had received less than 20% of the vote east of the Ural Mountains. So when the Czechs came through and started knocking off red garrisons along the Trans-Siberian Railway, anti-Bolshevik groups would use the opportunity to assert control. The Czechs did not really cause these counter-revolutionary forces to act in the ways that they did, but they provided an environment that allowed it to happen. In the Russian Civil Wars, 1916 to 1926, ten years that shook the world, author Jonathan D. Smeal would describe the effects of the Czech Legion like this. Quote, the revolt of the Czechoslovak Legion instead provided a nourishing environment in which the already planted seeds of domestic counter-revolution could germinate. The areas where the Czech Legion would have the greatest effect would be the exact same areas that would be the base of power for the eventual rise of Admiral Kolchak. Kolchak would not be the first leader of the anti-Bolshevik forces in Siberia. That would instead be the Directory of Omsk. The Directory was led by five individuals, which represented all of the various groups in Siberia that wanted to resist a Bolshevik seizure of power. These parties were formed from both the left and the right edges of the political spectrum, and they would come together to form the Committee of Members of the Constituent Assembly, or the Kamush. In June 1918, they would form this committee. It was a coalition group, as I mentioned, and it would always claim to represent the interests and ideals of the original revolution, the February Revolution. And while the various groups agreed on this goal, they would never form a strong connection, especially the SRs and the right-wing military leaders. The internal squabbling that would develop meant that it would take just the right set of circumstances for one group to take control, and perhaps name a single person as the sole leader of the committee. 
At the height of their power, the Kamush controlled huge swaths of Siberia and areas east of the Urals. The committee was initially dominated by SRs, and this meant that it enjoyed a large amount of support from the peasants, which made up the vast majority of the population of the region. This would be one of the only times that a truly socialist group would be the ones leading an anti-Bolshevik government. They bolstered the support with a very aggressive land policy, something that many white groups would not commit to. Under this policy, the peasants were given permanent ownership of the land that they worked, which helped solidify their support for the Kamush. Beyond the land policy, the Kamush was big on ideas, but not able to put many of them into actual reality. They would also run into problems that were inherent to the geography in which they were based. Essentially, the population that they counted on for support was very spread out, and it also proved quite averse to volunteering for military service against the Bolsheviks. This is evidenced by the meager numbers of men that volunteered for service in the army, which they called the People's Army. The issue was that, in 1918, many peasants, and especially those closest to the communist-controlled territories, saw little reason to fight against them. During this early period, before the communists really began requisitioning heavily from the peasants, the agrarian policies between the communists and the Kamush were roughly the same. Under both governments, the peasants got the land that their former landlords had owned, and they had relative autonomy. This lack of ability to secure not just support, but passionate support from the peasants, especially in the western border regions, would be the Kamush's downfall. That downfall would herald the coming of Admiral Alexander Vasilevich Kolchak. Before the war, Kolchak was known as an innovative thinker in the Russian Navy, and during the war he had been the commander of the Russian Black Sea's fleet. In September 1918, he would take control of the Kamush and create the Provisional Siberian Government. This was accomplished by the removal of the SRs from the government, which removed a large portion of the representation from the left. This was done by the leaders on the right, and when it was done, they would name Kolchak their leader. There were two important reasons that Kolchak was the one that was named as the leader of the provisional Siberian government. The first was that it was believed that he had much better connections with the Allies, or better connections than anybody else in the region, since he had recently returned from a visit to the United States. He used this fact to convince the others that he could help arrange support from the Allies. He would initially proclaim that he supported the return of the Constituent Assembly, although his messaging on that topic would become a bit muddier as time went on. In November 1918, he would fully take control, giving himself the title of Supreme Ruler, and during this time, he was able to gain the support of the British and French. Their power in Siberia was not very great, except for the fact that the Czechs listened to them and rarely did anything that was flatly against their wishes. It would be the support from the Allies and the desire to stay in their favor that would drive many of his actions. Through these actions, he would find himself designated as the Allies' choice to lead the White Movement in all of Russia. They went so far as to get Denikin, who in reality was in a much stronger position at some point in southern Russia, to agree to take orders from Kolchak. The second important reason that Kolchak was chosen to lead the Provisional Siberian government was because, well, he was there. In the middle of Siberia in 1918, there were few Russians who had any notable public office in their history. Most of the military leaders were with Kornilov and Denikin in southern Russia, or were still trapped in communist-controlled areas, which was the fate of many political leaders. Just being in the right place at the right time was important, and in that regard, Kolchak came of aces. 
Kolchak did have some good qualities, though. By all accounts, he was very personally brave, although by other accounts, he was a bit skittish. He would also be completely unwilling to give up the concept of an undivided, reunited Russia, as we discussed in previous episodes. This meant that he would turn away many other groups within Russia that may have lent his government their support. He would also have many of the same problems as other white leaders, namely the complete inability to create or sustain a meaningful civilian government. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. During his time in power, Kolchak would slowly amass a force that was, at least on paper, the strongest available to any white commander during the entirety of the Civil War. His strength stood at 110,000 men, no small number given the demographic difficulties that Kolchak was working under. The area that he ruled contained 12 million people, which seems like a lot, but they were scattered over a vast distance. That made it a challenge to concentrate his army and to exert the power necessary to ensure that conscription was carried out. In reality, the area where Kolchak's power was strong enough to actually enforce conscription contained only about 8 million people. Just as a comparison, the communists, who controlled the central and northern areas of Russia, controlled a population of 60 million from which they could draw their conscripts. There were also problems within the army that made it very challenging to actually utilize the 110,000-man theoretical strength of the army. First of all, there was the requirement to garrison many of the areas under Kolchak's command to maintain control. Second, there was very little experience among the officers and men of the army, with many of the soldiers being conscripts who were getting their first taste of military service. Third, there was almost certainly too many officers for the number of men that were in the frontline units. Uh, So the actual combat effective men were much smaller than 110,000. All of this meant that the actual number of combat effective troops which could be concentrated in one area for an attack was only, at most, 40,000. Polchak planned to use this force to attack in the spring of 1919. 
This attack would be launched at this time because Kolchak believed that it was necessary to show some kind of progress, and to prove that progress through victory. This progress was required to ensure the continued support from the Allies, which had up to that point poured supplies and money into Kolchak's army and government with very little to show for it. The attack was planned to begin as early as possible in the spring of 1919, as soon as the weather would allow it, which put the date somewhere in March. Much has been made of the fact that this attack was launched just a few months before Denikin would make a similar attack from the south. It is most likely that the leaders of the Siberian army, as Kolchak's forces were called, did not wait for Denikin because they did not believe that the assistance of Denikin was necessary. They drastically underestimated the strength of the Red Army at this time, and it would be their own doing. The offensive would begin on March 4th, and it would begin with triumphant success. The attack was launched on the entire front, with the heaviest fighting occurring in the center, with the attacks in the center having one goal, pushing to Moscow. Throughout all of March and into April, the Siberian army's forces continued forward. It was not always easy. In many areas, the winter snows were still present, but this only slowed and did not stop the advance. By the middle of April, they had advanced hundreds of kilometers and had captured a staggering 180,000 square miles of territory. At that moment, things were looking great for the Siberian army. But very soon, and I'm sure you saw this coming, it all fell apart. The core of the problem was that the Siberian army had drastically overextended itself. With the constant desire to push forward, the army soon found itself far from its supply lines, and stranded with the Red Army getting stronger every single day. During late April and early May, thousands of Red Army troops moved onto the front, and then they counterattacked. From May until July, the counterattack pushed forward, pushing the white forces back in front of them. And as was so often the case, the Siberian army, which had been relatively cohesive during the advance, soon began to fall apart as the defeats continued. By June 9th, the Red Army had captured Ufa, the place where the offensive had first began, and it would be just one of the many places that would fall to the Red Army. There were many attempts by the Siberian commanders to halt the disintegration of the army, but all of them were to no avail. The Red Army, seeing that the enemy was in shambles, continued to pour more and more men into the fighting. Tens of thousands would arrive just during the last few weeks of July. With the army rapidly falling apart, the political leadership in Siberia began to crumble. On October 7th, the provisional Siberian government would dissolve, and Kolchak would be on the run. The defeat of the Siberian army represented an important victory for the Red Army, both in the defeat of one of the communist enemies, but also in displaying how far the Red Army had come since the end of the revolution. In just a year, it had gone from a disorganized militia to a reasonably fearsome fighting force, and in that transformation it owed much to Trotsky and the officers from the old Tsarist army that had been admitted back into the army during 1918. The Red Army had also been able to use all of the squabbles of 1918, which in hindsight were just small meeting engagements, as a learning experience. This gave the commanders and men of the army some real experience in real fighting, and prepared them for the more dangerous clashes of 1919 and 1920. With Kolchak and the Siberian army in disarray, they had removed one of the largest enemies to the state, and they had captured large swaths of territory which brought many important areas like the Urals back into communist hands. For the rest of 1919, Kolchak would be on the run. The Red Army advance would continue through August, September, and October, and then they arrived in Omsk, the capital of Kolchak's government, in November. 
They could have arrived sooner, but the army could only move so fast. Their rate of advance was limited by how quickly their Red Army units could move forward, because resistance had evaporated. Polchak and what remained of his forces broke up, some heading into Irkutsk and some continuing along the Trans-Siberian Railway towards Vladivostok. On January 4, 1920, Kolchak would resign as the head of the government that he had created, losing his far too grandiose title of supreme ruler. Seeing no other way forward, he would turn himself into the Czechs and hope that they would protect him. The Czechs agreed to take him in and then move him on his way east to Vladivostok. But in February, they would trade him away to a Red Army unit which was blocking their path, and on February 7th, Kolchak would be killed. The removal of Kolchak from the board allowed the Red Army to put far more focus on other areas of fighting, like southern and western Russia, and to divert strength to the rising internal disturbances led by green peasant forces. One way in which both the Reds and the Whites dealt with peasant disturbances or other issues related to those within the territory that they controlled was through acts of terror. During the entirety of the First World War, and then the revolutions, and then the Civil War, there was almost constant acts of violence against civilians in Russia. These happened for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they were ordered by local commanders or just perpetrated by the men of the various armies and armed groups that roamed the countryside. There was another type of atrocity, though, which would take center stage during the Civil War, and these would be the Terrors, as in capital T, Terrors. And these were delineated from the more random acts of violence because they were specific politically motivated acts of terror designed to bring fear into enemies, assert dominance, and assure control. Both the communist leaders and the various leaders of the whites would order these terrors. It is often a challenge to determine when random acts of terror ended and when organized terror began, or who did it first or why. Both the Whites and the Reds claimed that the other side was the reason for the terrors, with the Reds claiming that the Whites were seeding counter-revolutionaries into their midst, and the Whites claiming much the same thing. In their actions, both sides would certainly be influenced by the acts of the other, but they were also influenced by their shared history, the history of Russia. Russia under the Tsars had a long history of imprisonment and violence against political dissidents, and the socialists and Bolsheviks had been on the receiving end of much of that violence in the years before and after the 1905 revolution. The Reds would use this prior treatment as part of the justification for their actions, blaming the violence done by the old bourgeoisie. What is known is that the first organized Red Terror was ordered on September 4, 1918, it was on this day that the Soviets were told that they should arrest any known white supporters, any leaders of the SRs, and any members of the old upper classes. The order to begin these actions was prompted by an attempted assassination of Lenin. On August 31st, Lenin had been shot and wounded by a member of the SRs outside of a factory in Moscow, and this would be the catalyst for the first Red Terror. At first, it would come in the form of mass arrest, although anyone who resisted that arrest would be shot on the spot. While all the Soviets were asked to join in the rounding up of counter-revolutionaries, it would always be the Cheka that was best known for their actions in this regard. The Cheka, or the Extraordinary Commission for the Struggle with Counter-Revolution and Sabotage, were the political police, with wide powers to act against any possible counter-revolutionary threat. It would be led by Felix Zerzinski, and they would quickly become the most feared group in Russia during the Civil War. 
One of Dzerzhinsky's deputies, Latisse, would make the purpose of the Red Terror very clear when he stated, quote, We are not waging war against individual persons. We are exterminating the bourgeoisie as a class. During the investigation, do not look for evidence that the accused acted in deed or word against Soviet power. The first questions that you ought to put are, to what class does he belong? What is his origin? What is his education or profession? It is these three questions that ought to determine the fate of the accused, and this lies the significance and essence of the Red Terror. End quote. While the terrors may have started as act of violence against a specific class of people, they soon expanded. Any actions that a person could take that was against the will of the Communist Party could get them arrested. Private trading, resisting the requisitioning of food, protesting workers, all were targets. And while the terror began with mass arrests, it most certainly would not end with just mass arrests. The next step was mass executions, which would occur many times during the Civil War. For example, in early September, it was announced by the government that 500 counter-revolutionaries had been killed in Petrograd. It's very possible that the actual number of victims was quite a bit higher. This was not an uncommon occurrence throughout communist-controlled Russia. In total, tens of thousands of executions would take place all over the country, with thousands more arrested. The Peter and Paul Fortress was used as a massive jail and interrogation area in Petrograd. The tortures that were used there were horrific, and ones I won't go into detail here because I consider this kind of a family show. In the countryside, peasants were often arrested for any form of resistance or food requisitioning. If a peasant was arrested for this reason, it's very likely that their lands would also be confiscated by the state, meaning that even if they survived their imprisonment, they would have no life to return to. The situation was much worse in areas that openly resisted communist takeover or areas with large non-Russian populations. In the Don and Kuban, the Cossacks were often targeted specifically so that their land could be confiscated and redistributed to peasants known to be loyal to Moscow. In the Ukraine, food was mercilessly confiscated, resulting in famines and suffering among the peasant classes. These terrors would later be considered a bit of history that was avoided by Soviet historians, and often it would later be claimed that they were the work of communist extremists. However, there is a lengthy paper trail of support for these actions right up to the top of the communist leadership. There were some that, from within that called for the reduction of violence perpetrated by the Cheka, but they would never actually be heeded. The Cheka had the support of Trotsky, Stalin, and most importantly, Lenin. For example, on August 11th, Lenin would send instructions to the communist leaders in Penza, stating that the best way to end a Kulak uprising, Kulak in this context could mean anything from large landowners to peasants who had recently got the land as part of land redistribution. He mentioned that the best way to handle it was to, quote, hang, hang without fail, so the people can see, no fewer than 100 known Kulaks, rich men, bloodsuckers. Take from them all the grain, designate hostages. Do it in such a way that for hundreds of versts around, the people will see, tremble, know. Telegraph receipt and implementation. I bring up this specific quote from Lenin, not to blame the terrors on Lenin, but to point out that there were no clean communists among the upper echelons of the party at this time. They all knew about the terrors and the mass murders that were done in the name of the party. They allowed it and supported it. The communists would not be the only people to commit atrocities, though. 
But the structure of the white terrors is a bit more confusing, if only because the white movement as a whole was far less organized. There was no central and authoritarian party leadership, or a Cheka equivalent that centralized the execution of the terror. Even without this centralized driving force, though, the structure of the white terror was much the same, especially as their territory expanded and contracted. Entire villages were burned to the ground, and everyone inside the village could be killed or conscripted into the army. Peasants were executed seemingly at random. In other areas, hostages were taken in the hopes of assuring the good behavior of those that remained behind. In most cases, the murders were done due, the, due to the overall distrust between the white units and the people within the village or city. This distrust could be caused by any number of reasons. Maybe the areas was, were known to have supported the Reds. Maybe they resisted the requisitioning of supplies. Maybe they were the wrong ethnicity. Maybe they were Jewish. All of these and many more could trigger the violence, which always seemed to boil right under the surface. Much like on the red side, these acts of violence were well known among the upper echelons of white leadership, whoever that may have been at whatever time that you're talking about. There are few recorded cases of any higher level white officers or leaders stopping these acts of mass violence. There was a long history of them desperately trying to conceal the acts from the Allies, though, being concerned that if the scale of the violence done by their armies became Copland knowledge, the support from the West for the whites would quickly evaporate. It's impossible to know how many people were killed by the combined red and white terrors. Even if you leave out some of the later acts of politically motivated violence, like those in Ukraine and southern Russia that resulted in widespread famine, which we'll discuss in later episodes, the number was still very high. Estimates are all over the place, though, and any number that is given is purely an estimate and should be taken with a huge grain of salt. The chaos of the Civil War and the efforts of both sides to shroud the scale of their actions means the real number will probably never be known. I've seen numbers between 100,000 and 300,000 people killed, and an even wider variance on the number arrested and tortured. Regardless of the actual number, though, the scale of death and suffering makes for a very sad story. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me next episode as we continue the story of the Russian Civil War.